Have you ever walked into a store and felt like, okay, if I had a store, this is exactly what it would look like? That is what happened to me when I walked into Catbird, this beautiful little shop in Williamsburg, New York. They are known around the world for these beautiful, delicate gold stacking rings that they make. Their collection of jewelry is really simple and delicate, and it's the kind of jewelry that you put on and you never take off. You can go swimming in it, you can wear it to a wedding, and all of the jewelry that they make, these delicate pieces made with recycled gold or fair mined from scale mining communities are really special. They also have this foundation called the Catbird Foundation, which is tied to the ethos of their brand, which is a commitment to making and doing good things. So they donate a percentage of their sales to nonprofit organizations that align with their belief in equality and helping others. They're really committed to serving communities in need all over the world. So whether you go to their store or their gorgeous website, catbirdnyc.com, you're entering a world of beautiful things made by really good people. Whether you're getting a simple birthday present or you're proposing, catbirdnyc.com, informal luxury. Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's a lot of and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be a-okay. Hey everyone, new episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact about my guest today. As a child of a military family, she never lived in one place for very long. That lifestyle has helped her become an actress who can reinvent herself with every role she plays. Welcome Academy Award winner Julianne Moore. A-OK. everyone, my guest today is the Academy Award-winning actress Julianne Moore. Along with her Oscar, BAFTA, Golden Globe, Emmy, and SAG Awards, she has won 
or been nominated for basically every acting and humanitarian award possible. <laughs> After graduate, it's all true. I fact-checked every one of these things. After graduation from Boston University, she began as a theater actress, but has gone on to appear in over 65 films. Some of those titles include Safe, The Big Lebowski, Shortcuts, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, The Hours, The End of the Affair, The Myth of Fingerprints, The Kids Are All Right, Far From Heaven, What Maisie Knew, Maps to the Stars, Still Alice, and The Hunger Games franchise. She began her career playing twins on the soap opera As the World Turns. She performed on Broadway in The Vertical Hour. She's the author of the children's book series Freckle Face Strawberry. She has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. She's a wife, a mother, a dog lover, an activist. She lives in New York City. Welcome, Julianne Moore, to the podcast. Hey, my God, that's like a memorial service. Well, you know, I would qualify that introduction by saying, you said I began my career as a theater actress. I really began it on daytime television. So when you graduated from college... I moved to New York City in 1983, right after I graduated from college at BU. And the first thing I did was, of course, get a, get a job um, waiting tables. I started... Um, looking for a job on 86th Street, and I just went all the way down 2nd Avenue applying for jobs until I finally got one on 38th Street. <laughs> so you lost 10 pounds. <laughs> That's right. It was a long few weeks of walking down 2nd Avenue. So I waited on tables for about six months, and actually my first job was at the Buffalo Studio Arena in Buffalo, okay. New York. It was the dresser. And then immediately after that, I got a job at the Huntington Theater, which was the same theater that, that BU uses, where I did plenty. Then I got a job on The Edge of Night for like seven episodes, and then right after that went on As the World Turns. So I would say I really had more success early in my career in daytime. I really, you know, worked on daytime more than, I mean, I had those two plays. I would audition for stuff for a lot of theater and get very, very close to it, not get the job, but I did well in television. That was where I, that's that's where I got That's where you heard the yes. Yeah, yeah. Early on. Yeah. When you graduated from BU, did you have an agent? Yeah. I met with several agents. There was one guy that pursued me pretty aggressively, um, and he even came up to Boston, and I signed with him. So that was my m- most fortunate piece of luck, that I, when I moved to New York City, I had this agent that was sending me out. Do you remember when you first got out of college and auditioned for the agents, what pieces you were doing or no? Isn't that terrible? But I do remember... This Juilliard stage was very uneven. You know, it was old wooden stage. And I went to stand and I put one foot down and the other foot was kind of on another on another board. The board was higher up. And so then I couldn't stop. Then I couldn't get my legs even so they wouldn't stop shaking. So my whole my whole body shimmied like the entire time and I didn't dare move my legs to get a better purchase. I just stood there and shook. Oh, God, it was awful. Do you remember when you stopped losing control of your insides when you were asked to act? Maybe like five years ago. Five years. <laughs> May 15th, 2011. I know, I know. I still don't always know um, what's going to happen. Do you know? I've learned different techniques for, for how to... I mean, what was interesting about going right on to daytime, you know, my first epic job on daytime, is I, I forced myself to watch myself. So I could see I could see where my anxiety, where my nerves were showing up in my body. And I learned, by watching myself, I learned to at least keep it off camera. So if I was really having a hard time, I could put it at my feet. If my feet were off camera, I could move them around. So I, le- I did learn some over tricks. the years some tricks to just keep my anxiety at at bay. 
And then eventually... Xanax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then it, but eventually you do learn, I think I did learn about, well, you learn sort of a way of being when you're acting. So there was, for me, there was a less of a demarcation between being, talking to a person, being in the room, and performing. So that idea that I was going to go from being myself to performing initially was a big leap. And that was where the fear came in. And then I think after all these years, what I have learned and it's been, been effective for me and I still use is that is that I try to bring my sense of self, my actual conversation with someone, my sense of being in the room to that performance. And that's when I'm most successful. That's when I'm able to keep anxiety at bay. So when the word action doesn't suddenly create this line between Julie and Correct. Alice or whoever you're about yes, to play. Yes, correct. And as a matter of fact, I think it, sometimes it surprises other actors. I'm very relaxed when I'm on a set and I keep up a conversation for a long time because for me, that where I'm most authentically myself and where I feel best is in conversation with another person. Like, how are you? What are you doing? What did you have for lunch today? What did you do yesterday? What time did you get up? Did you sleep well? Blah, 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 blah. So keeping all that going and then into action, you know, that keeps my anxiety at bay. That allows me to go from one place to another without the sudden performative thing. Even if the character is a huge departure from how we might think of you in your day-to-day life. Exactly. It doesn't matter. Right. It doesn't matter. It's just keeping that channel open between like who I am and who that character is and that, and to kind of, to, to kind of get that, take that line away mm-hmm. for me. You didn't grow up in a showbiz family. No. Talk about departure from when we call action your childhood to your adulthood in Um, terms of lifestyle. Yeah. I mean, you know, my dad was in the army. My parents were married very young when they were 19 and 20. And my dad, yeah, joined the army. Your mom was from Scotland. Did she have an accent? Yeah, she did. So they went to high school together. My mother had immigrated to the United States from Scotland when she was 10. They met at church when they were 12 and dated in high school and then got married at 19 and 20. And my dad joined the army. And they had three children very quickly. So we moved a lot. You know, we moved all over the place. And um, Where were you actually born? North Carolina. And how long did you stay there as a family? Six months. Okay. So yeah. there's no roots no. anywhere, really, in nowhere. that way. Absolutely nowhere. So so we we moved a lot. And my parents also both, because they hadn't finished their college education, both finished it later. You know, after my dad got out of Vietnam, he went to college and law school. My mom took college courses everywhere we were until she finally like cobbled together a degree and graduated um, summa cum laude um, from Briarcliff College in Westchester when I was in the eighth grade. Wow. And then got two master's degrees. So both of them, and my dad went to law school, so they both both really valued education and wanted that for us. And so it was important that we do well in school. And and my mother really was the one who taught me how to read when I was, you know, kindergarten, first grade. I can remember learning how to read. And once I learned how to read, that was the thing that I took everywhere with me. So, you know, we weren't, we wouldn't be a place very long. So I didn't always have friends when I got there. But you had a library. But I had a library. Yeah. And she brought us to the library every single week and I could check out as many books as I wanted to. And there were times when I would move to, you know, like I remember moving to Alaska when I was 10 and not knowing anybody. You spending... have like, I have a library book from Detroit. I... <laughs> yeah, right, right. What do I do with it? Do I get it? But I, I can remember a librarian saying to me, I had, you know, the maximum number of books. At that point, I think you were allowed to check out 12 books or something, something ridiculous. And she was like, you're not going to read all those. And I said, yes, I am. And I would, I would, I would read them. You know, that's all I did. So, so the place where I felt sort of the most uh, myself and the most comfortable and most seen in a way was like in a book. Because, you know, I remember when I was a kid thinking when you'd read a book, well, how do they know that about me? 
you know, how does that author know that about me? And I, that's what's so fascinating to me about children's literature, too, is that it allows people to see themselves. They're like, wow. So that's about the, that universal connection, you know, sure. about like we all are. We all are feeling the same things. Yeah. We all know the same things. You know, that was where I felt most comfortable. So. So, yes. Yeah, so back to the reading thing. Um, in June, so in junior high, by the time people started having to do stuff after school, I would try out for stuff like cheerleading or drill team or whatever, and I didn't ever make it. <laughs> well, I mean, that there was doesn't seem else that fair. I, I mean, you know, yeah. and uh, we, I started, I did a play. Actually, oh my God, this is actually a good segue. The first play I ever did wasn't in sixth grade when I was in uh, Westchester, and it was Your Good Man, Charlie Brown. Oh, and I know that you're from. I am familiar Lucy. with that material. Yes, um, and I auditioned, didn't get any part, but the English teacher was, you know, in that trying to give everybody a part. Let me play the little red-haired girl. So she's an offstage part, you know, obviously. But yeah. this being sixth grade, they brought her on stage. So my job was to sit on a park bench and eat a sandwich while Charlie Brown talked about me. So that was my first part. And put a bag over his head. Put <laughs> a bag over uh, his while head. While he talked to you, right. And the hardest thing was eating the sandwich on stage because I was scared and my mouth was dry and I couldn't swallow. But I had no lines. So that was your debut. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That sounds terrifying. It was horrible. I couldn't swallow the sandwich. Do you have... <laughs> Yeah. Ever since then, Julianne's like, I will not eat. I don't I like eating. Eat. I do not like eating. I do not. I just actually watched Danny DeVito eat a hard-boiled egg on stage. And I'm like, how, how he is he it? not choking? That's mm. a whole skill set uh-huh. in and of itself. That's right. Do you have any relationships with any one from your childhood, from any of these places that you live? Oddly, Yes. Interesting question. So I was in junior high in Virginia and then two years of high school. And when I was in the eighth, yeah, eighth grade. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, um, so I met a guy named Bruce Cohen and Bruce Cohen was, uh, we got to be friends, actually pretty close friends in the ninth and the 10th grade. And he would, as is by the time I was sort of in plays, that was yeah. what I did. Because like I said, I couldn't, I didn't make cheerleading. I didn't even make the drill team. They so took like 50 girls. So would you show up in a new town and you would find like the drama department or the after school it was, theater? It, what, like what how ha- did you do it? So what happened was, like I said, a little red haired girl was sixth grade. That was in New York. Yes. Moved to Virginia. I met my friend, Chris Jepson, and Chris and I would try out for things together is like, Chris a boy or a girl? Girl. We weren't chosen. We didn't weren't cheerleaders, cheerleaders. We weren't whatever. And that's when I started doing plays. Like I said, we tried out for drill team. They took 50 girls. The only ones they didn't take were me and Chris. <laughs> that's the saddest. <laughs> well, but you know what? It pointed me in a different direction. That's right. So at that point, Chris and I were like, Well, you must so, have really been I was terrible. not coordinated at all. Not at all. <laughs> so Chris and I were like, what are we going to do after school? So we said, let's try out for the play. And they were doing Sleeping Beauty. And I remember auditioning for it. And I was doing really well. Unlike when I tried out for Your Good Man, Charlie Brown, I couldn't sing and I didn't get that, you know, didn't get a big part. I was doing well and I would listen to, we had to audition in front of each other. And I would listen to these other kids and I thought, huh, can't they hear it? Can't they hear how it's supposed to be? Because I thought everybody could just hear how it was in your head. The rhythms, yeah. Yeah. And I got the part of Sleeping Beauty, which was sort of amazing because I was not a very beautiful girl. (laughs) Really? I find that hard to believe. No, I was very small, very skinny, had big glasses, really freckly, but I could do the part. So that was kind of when I became interested in acting, me and my friend Chris Jepson, and this other person who I became friends with is Bruce Cohen. 
So Bruce and I went through eighth, ninth, and tenth grades together, lost touch entirely. And then I was watching a movie with my sister in L.A. years and years later, a Steven Spielberg movie, and it said first A.D. Bruce Cohen. And I was like, I wonder if that's the Bruce Cohen. Might it be? So I contacted the DGA, and it was him, and we kind of um, reacquainted ourselves. Anyway, Bruce is a big-time producer now. Is he like now. Bruce Cohen, Dan Jinks? And, yes, and that, that Bruce Cohen. Level so, of insane success. So, yeah. So he's a huge, huge Academy Award-winning producer, and Bruce and I have been friends since we were 14. And it's just the weirdest thing that we were friends then, sort of, you know, split up. Now, he lives a few blocks from me with his husband and his daughter, and he's a great guy. He's very politically active, wonderful person, really talented. But, it's, I mean, he's one of the few people that... I know from that's incredible your facility I'm going to ask a grammar question sure as a great reader would it be your facility with or for accents your facility for I feel like your facility for accents is pretty extraordinary (laughs) and um really fluid like there's never any like she's doing an accent (laughs) and I wonder if in part growing up with someone who had an accent and then traveling so much might it informs your ear I was just talking about this like birds you know, I was watching these YouTube videos um, of because I, I like little birds, and they were talking about why birds learn language. You know, because they human language. You know, they they copy they copy sounds of their flock members that they can communicate. And if you adopt a bird and bring a bird into your house and speak to that bird, the bird will believe that you, you know those are the sounds that they should make. That's how they learn speech. So we're that way too. You know, we are in an environment and you're like, well, what do I, what should I sound like? That's how you make this sound. Um, Eventually it becomes kind of indelible if you stay in that area. You can't differentiate. But if you move around a lot, you're going to notice the variations in sound and in accents and know how to. And the other thing about accents, people don't lose accents. They acquire a new one. It's always about the acquisition of sound because we're always looking to blend in. So I think that has something to do with it. When you were living in the South. Would you have more of a Southern accent? I think everybody does. You know, spend some time in England with some Americans who've lived there for a while and you listen to their, you're like, what are you, what are yeah. you talking, why are you talking like yeah. that? You I know? remember having the great pleasure of having dinner with Elizabeth McGovern uh-huh. one night and I was yes. like, what's happening? She's got this crazy hybrid I, sound. I like sound like that. I know. It worked for her on Downton uh-huh. quite magnificently. Exactly. I'm quite pleased with how things have turned out. <laughs> for Elizabeth for Elizabeth, Elizabeth. Yes. I want to talk about the fact that you did that thing that is sort of always parodied in a way is like uh-huh. playing twins oh, yes. on a soap opera. How like, lucky was I? You really, I mean, right? talk about like acting class and it might oh. not have been the theater, but I feel like soaps are kind of the closest to yeah. like summer stock, like crazy uh-huh. amounts of material. That One you of the had things to learn. that I say to young actors all the time. And me. Yeah. <laughs> and Alana. <laughs> and Alana. Yeah. I say this to Alana. <laughs> um, people talk about, you know, how do you gain experience and, you know, what do you do? And, and there's a, a lot of people disparage daytime television because, you know, the, it's the, here. The thing about it's it reputation is, precedes it in a funny way. In a funny way. And it not shouldn't. Being serious acting. The thing that happens on daytime television is everyone's working very quickly. You're producing 70 pages of dialogue a day. Right. And every, so the producers, the writers, the directors, the actors, there's no time. That's that's what's challenging about it is that you just do not have the time to develop something. So things are things are not good. That's why, you know, you don't have the time to do it. For me as a young actor to have that opportunity to take responsibility for my work. Also, no one has time to help you because they're mm-hmm. too busy, you know. So you have to take responsibility. You learn your lines, you figure out your objective, you know, you um 
watch yourself on on you know on playback and see if it's see where your attention is going. You know, I had the opportunity for three years to learn every day from what I was doing, and sometimes I was so bad. But the great thing is, it's gone. Mm-hmm. You know, one day it's over. And in those days. We, you know, things didn't show up on YouTube or whatever. I mean, you recorded it yourself and then it went to the trash. Right. Um, so so you felt sort of secure in, in trying things and it dis, in it disappearing. And like I said, learning to take responsibility for my own work was the biggest lesson that I that I learned. I remember Marissa Tomei, who I had gone to college with. She was a few years behind me at BU and she dropped out to do, I think she got a Broadway show and then ended up on the soap and stuff. And she was awesome. We got into the um, the elevator at the CBS building at 57th Street. And she goes, see L right there? She goes, L's for lunch. That's where the cafeteria is. <laughs> You're like, this is my kind of girl. Thank you. Yes. And then I remember doing a scene with her and I flubbed, I messed something up. And they were like, that's a bye, moving on. And I just stood there stunned. And Marissa was like, you feel terrible, don't you? And I was like, yeah. She goes, that's going to happen a lot. It's really, really fast. So, you know, she was... Someone she kind of took you under yeah, her wing. Yeah, she bit. did. You know, I mean, she was just kind and straightforward. The woman who played my mother, Catherine Hayes, had been on the soap for a really long time. She'd been sort of a starlet in California. Was married to Glenn Ford, so had a lot of screen experience. Was very beautiful. And I remember once doing some scene where I had to throw myself into her arms, sobbing, and I threw myself on her upstage shoulder. She very gently took my face in her hands and put it on her downstage shoulder so that the camera could see me. That's generous and I, sweet. She was so generous. And she would, you know, people would say, like, the camera operators would just give you make a gesture to move you closer into the frame. Everybody was teaching. Yeah, like a little bit, like nothing directly because right. you... You didn't have time, but 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 what was great is that you were you were taught in a way that as like a peer, you're like here you are. We need to get this done. How are we going to accomplish this? So if I can nudge you, help you, do whatever. But like I said, you also had to take responsibility for yourself and show up. See, you just mentioned crying, which always mm-hmm. for a lot of young actors or more seasoned actors mm-hmm. feels like as soon oh. as they see that in the script, they're like. It says she's crying. It's the worst. And yet I feel like that's something you have figured out how to do on cue. It took me years. And actually on the soap, I remember being furious because there was a line. I was in the middle of doing some scene and they and the, the line was, the character said, Franny, why are you crying? And I was like, listen, I want to change this line because I, I said, I'm pretty sure I can cry at some point. I just don't know if I can cry exactly at that point. And they were like, no, 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 we're not going to change it. And I got there and they said, Franny, why are you crying? And I'm like, I'm not crying. So I stopped the scene. And we did it again. We did it again. And finally, And finally, they allowed me to change the line. I found the place in the scene where I could do it. I think for an actor, whenever anybody comments on you crying, it's death. You know, it's it's like try to remove that, you know, try to move that kind of that precision of the crying coming right there. But then the other thing that I learned and that they try to teach you in acting school, but it's impossible to understand when you're 18, 19 years old, is that it only happens if you are relaxed. And when you're young, you believe that if you just tie yourself into knots, that's when you're going to cry. But it doesn't happen that way. A lot of it's about relaxation, breathing. You have to breathe in order to kind of like let the feelings in and out. I'll tell people that. This is really silly and very technical, but you have to drink water. You have to be hydrated. If you are nervous, you haven't been drinking water, you're dehydrated, you're not going to be able to actually produce tears. You might get the feeling going, but then you're like, oh, shoot, I can't cry. And just put yourself in a place where you're emotionally available to that, to, to the idea of that. 
but it's hard. It's practice. You know, it's funny. You're just reminding me of something that I haven't thought of for so long. And I think it's because you're sitting here that I really feel the presence of of Bob Altman, who is someone we both worked with. Obviously, you did shortcuts with him, and that was really huge for you and your career. I remember hearing you at his memorial service, and it was really beautiful. The first series I did was with Bob. It was called Tanner 88, and it was one of those moments where it was my first time being asked to cry um, on film. Uh And I was really anxious about it, so much so that I think I woke up seven hours earlier and had been trying to find the soundtrack on my Walkman to listen to, to kind of get me into the the frame of mind emotionally. And I remember doing something very different than what you discussed earlier, which is rather than staying engaged with people, I was like in a corner inflicting self-torture and I was really working myself up. And right before we were about to shoot, and Bob was so generous Generous, in this way that he would, of course, do my coverage first, just so I wouldn't have to be tortured all day long. But but he just, right when we were about to shoot, he just kissed me on the top of my head. Oh, yeah. Right? And that kind of tenderness and kindness. Kindness. In a moment where I'd been torturing myself for hours and hours on end was kind of... interesting, isn't it? But those are the magic... Like, you can't count on, like, Robert Altman kissing you on the head. You have to figure it out for your but what Bob did, and I say this, is so, it's so nice to talk to somebody who worked with him and who yeah, understands and us too, him, yeah. is that he, everything you did was right with Bob. You couldn't do anything wrong. So even yeah. if you hadn't cried, he would have been like, that's He wouldn't fine. have cared. He, he wouldn't, wouldn't have, have cared. cared. But you um, also want to please him because yes. he is such well, a generous Because he is so generous, I think you yeah. want to do, you, you, you're like, what else? What else can I do for you? How right. can I, how can I help? What can I do? I want this to be good for you, you know? And yet he believes that everything is right. Everything human, everything real. And I think that he's, what, what he did by kissing you in the head like that is saying like, I see you. You're human. I see all your feelings. I see that, that the wholeness of you now bring that, you know, and then you're able to do that. So that's of course then I couldn't stop. I was like, can we just <laughs> He's like, okay, now I actually can't understand what you're, you're saying. You're saying now because it's slow four it days down. later in the film. So <laughs> right. <laughs> right. We need to stop. But that appreciation of what's real, um, you know, and that's what he's what made me want to be a film actor. You Tell know? me about that. When I was going to school in, in Boston when I was in theater school, that was one of the days when we there were still revival houses all over the place. You'd sure. go and watch these movies, whatever was playing. And I went to see three women one day. And wow. I had, had gone through the 70s not seeing Nashville or MASH or any of his movies. because I was a, and Mrs. Yeah, because right. I was a teenager yes. and I didn't go to those kind of movies. And I, I was the first time I saw like a director's hand in something, you know. And I was like, the performances blew me away with Shelley Duvall and Sissy Spacek. And, um, and it was kind of a naturalism that was amazing. And I was like, who is this guy? Who is this guy who who directed yeah. this movie? Like, I want to act with him. I want to act like that. And it was, you know, Robert Altman. So I started seeing all of his movies. That's when I did see Mash and McCabe Miss Miller and and uh, Nashville and all those and all of his brilliant films. And and I and I was like, okay. So it was a fantasy of mine to 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 meet him and work with him. Was Cookie's Fortune first or no, was Shortcut? Shortcut was. Okay. He actually saw me on stage. He saw me in Vanya and 42nd Street, right. Uncle Vanya, and when we were doing it as a theater piece. So he was one of the people who was invited. So he saw me there. And then I went in to audition for the player. And uh, it wasn't really an audition because he just met yeah. people. Yeah. And was desperate, you know, to, to do it. And he we had a nice meeting and I didn't get it. Anyway, so I was very disappointed. But then out of the blue, I remember I was in my kitchen in New York City. I got this phone call and he said, uh, um, it's, it's Bob Altman. 
And I was like, ha ha. I thought someone was playing a joke on me. And he's like, no, really, it's, it's uh, you know, Bob Altman, I have this movie that I want you to do. And I was, I was just stunned. And that was Shortcuts. Was that the first time that you addressed doing nudity on film? I don't remember. But that feels like that's never been a particularly huge mountain for you to climb I think it depends. I mean, it always depends on what, who's the director? What's the story? What are you telling? What story are you telling with the nudity? Is it extraneous? Is it exploitative? It's, it's not hard to figure it out. You know, you'll know, you'll know when your gut, when you look at a scene, what story they're telling and why is it important or is it not important? And there are times when, you know, there was one movie where I felt I made, I very much made a mistake and I knew it at the time as I was doing it. I was like, this is exploitative mm-hmm. and this is uncomfortable. And then I think once that, once that happened, I was like, I kind of was clear about, you know, what it was. I want to jump to the film where you met your husband because we fall in love or think we're falling in love a lot sometimes. Uh-huh. And, uh, <laughs> and it's rare that once the picture is wrapped that... That it keeps it, going. Yeah, like that's real. So yeah. um, the movie was The Myth of Fingerprints. Uh-huh, uh-huh. The man is... Bart Freundlich. Yes, yeah. who, who Julie now has had the most beautiful family with. And yeah. it's 20 years now, maybe? 21. Tell us a little bit about the love story. Oh, my goodness. When we first met, I was living in L.A., and I was at Sundance when I got his script. And I, was a, I had a pile of, of uh, independent scripts to, to read. And I read them, and I got a call from my manager saying, like, this filmmaker is in town. He needs, to, he needs an answer on this, and you have to kind of... I was like, oh, I read it. And I was like, I really like it. I'll meet him. And I liked it a lot, but I was... My life was a mess at the time. My car was in the shop. I was an hour late to the meeting. I had a meeting right after it. And, and of course, Bart remembers me as being very, very brusque. I was very direct. And I asked him particularly why he wanted me for this part. And he said something that I thought was really astute. He said, because you're very, you have a duality. You look completely different when you're serious and when you smile. And I want that in this character. And, that was like, and he was a young guy. And I was like, huh. And then he also knew a lot of actors that I admired um, James Legros was somebody I've been talking to who's a, who's a friend of mine, and I and he said I'd like to see him opposite, you know, opposite you in this thing, and and I also said I thought the script was too long, and that if my part was cut, that I wouldn't be interested in doing the movie. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Which was kind of a terrible thing to say. And then I said, um, okay, I think I'm going to do it, and and I. And I thought I was clear about like saying that I was going to do the movie. He was completely confused because I guess it was, I, you know, I, I think it was like a date thing. I needed it to happen by a certain date and then I was going to be able to do it. But so, so um, that's how we met. And then we, when we were on the f- set, I had forgotten what he looked like. And I remember he came to the door of my condo and knocked on the door. I had just gotten there. We were shooting in Maine and I opened the door and I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> And he was like, um, I'm Bart. I'm the director. I was like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. Come in. Isn't that terrible? So he came he in. Liked and, yeah, he, he liked it. He liked so. Right. And we worked together. There was sort of a few days of rehearsal. And then there was all of my stuff was up front. It was an ensemble film. And all of my stuff was up front. So I was tense because there was all this emotional stuff. And did I cry? All this kind of. And so we shot all that. And then the rest of the, the, rest of the time that I was there, the, in the next few weeks, it was just ensemble stuff. So it was easier for me. But so at the end of that week, I was like, I really like this guy. And so that's kind of how it started. And then, you know, I'd never been involved with a director before. That was weird. And um, and so we just sort of continued seeing each other after that. And it just sort of kept going. He lived in New York at that point. I lived in L.A. And um, we just, it just kept going. 
So there we go. When you look yeah. back, did you believe when that movie finished that you would end up having a family with this man? No. I mean, I really, really liked him. I mean, the, the relationship developed very, very quickly. I think, you know, I had a, sl- I had kind of a, I finished doing with the fingerprints and then I was going to start Boogie Nights in L.A. about a month and a half later. So I had this break and I said to myself, well, because I have this break, I'm going to go to New York and get a, you know, stay in a husband. hotel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get a husband. <laughs> so, I, I booked a hotel room. I got a place for like a month or something like that and see if this worked out. And so we just kind of just kept seeing each other. And then when I went to do Boogie Nights, he was editing in New York and he would come every weekend to LA. We just kept going back and forth and back and forth for a year. And then I got pregnant. <laughs> and that's, you know, and our son is now 19 years old. So, the rest is yeah, history, yeah. as they say. Yeah, we have a 15-year-old too. So, so you got married after both your kids were born. Yes, yes. They were, my, my daughter was 16 months old when we got married. I want to talk a little bit about Boogie Nights because it was certainly an important movie for you and yeah. your career. And that character, um, you know, it's funny that you described, that Bart described you as kind of the duality of of um, who you are when you're serious right. and who you are when you're, I mean, yeah. Amber Waves is sort of one of the most complicated yeah. on-screen characters um, that you probably didn't have much of a map for. No. But, you know, I feel like the map is always in the screenplay. You know, it was on I, the page. I much felt, of it. for me. I mean, I read that script and I was like, this is brilliant. This is brilliant. I'd never read anything like it. And I loved her. I just loved her right away. And I think that, you know, when you're when you place a character that's tragic or what's tragic in real life, often to me, are people who are um, who are the who, who are the artists, uh, the architects of their own tragedy. And so this was a woman, like the scene that really moved me was the scene where she's in court with the judge. She's trying to get custody back of her child. And she's sitting there and she's all dressed up and she feels that she's, um, you know, she has a right to this child. And the judge says to her, have you ever been arrested? And you just see the look on her face and you realize, of course, she's been arrested. You know, she works in the adult film industry and she's a drug addict. So that's that's what I loved about that is here's here's this person who's loving and a good friend and a and wants to be a good mother but it's not she's not responsible she's um she she's you know she has she she's been convicted of crimes she does do drugs she's not you know so so I love that about her so the fact that she does that doesn't make that her bad person but it does make her not an appropriate parent so to see that kind of all encapsulated, you know, that that dichotomy to me was just so, so moving because I loved her so much. And I used to argue with Paul all the time. I said, she should die. This is terrible. Because <laughs> at the end of the movie, you know, it ends on this, there's this close-up of her in the mirror and she's kind of moved into the 80s and she's still alive. And I said, a character like Amber Waves, I said, I don't know that Amber would survive. I said, I feel like she would overdose. You know, and he was like, no, 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 you know, and maybe you know, maybe I was being too, you know, maybe maybe it is sort of nicer to see her kind of plugging away. I mean, maybe there is something about that, too. But I well, felt like she's very fragile. Well, it allows an audience to wish for um, a second act for her, yes. right? Because we fall so in love with her right. and she's, um, you know, obviously the irony is not lost, right? Like she can't be the mother to her real biological child, but right. she becomes the mother in her world, right? A little yes, bit. Yes, you know, it's interesting because I know that that's sort of there thematically. Yeah, but you didn't feel it, that way. No, she. It's because it's a fantasy. 
So it's not real, you know. So so we tend to ascribe these kind of like um, family dynamics to things when there's not an actual family dynamic, right? That's interesting. And, and it's a it's a it's a structure. So so if I if she were truly capable of that kind of stuff, she wouldn't be doing what she's doing. Um, she's not, you know. She's it's it's a they've all structured themselves in a in a, in the narrative that we understand intrinsically, but they're not playing those parts appropriately. You know, she sleeps with. So right Right. there. It's more Greek. It's a different kind of mother for sure. Yeah. She had a big heart. Yeah. She had a super big heart. She was just a, she was just a, you know, just a lost soul. Can you you talk about what it was like to find out that you were nominated for an Academy Award the first time? Shocking. Yeah. It was, it was amazing. I, I just had a baby and I remember first one I was nominated for a Golden Globe. I didn't know what a Golden Globe was. And I j- literally had just, my son was born December 4th. And I think that in those days, the Golden Globe nominations came out like in mid-December or something. And I was like, what? So that sort of happened. And then here I was, I just had this baby and I was like, right. Whoa. so I was on the, the Golden Globes thing, like six weeks after I had a baby with huge boobs and I oh, I looked terrible. And I, you know, it didn't fit into anything. And then the Academy Awards happened and I I can remember I had to put a treadmill. I put a treadmill in my garage because we lived in LA at the time, so that I could work out. You know, I had a babysitter that would come in and sit with the baby while I could work out a little bit to try to lose some weight for the for the Oscars. And I can remember running on the treadmill, going, "I just got nominated for an Academy Award." I was like, "What? It's what? me, Julie?" I was like, "Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, this is nuts." Yeah, yeah. Well, what about like, do you have you felt pressure to look at, I mean, not, not just for yourself. Everyone wants to feel healthy. Yeah. And I feel like you've always had a pretty healthy attitude and yeah. lifestyle. But is that something that's been that you have felt pressure about or you think about or worry about? Well, of course you think about it. Do you know, I mean, um, there's a there's a physical aspect to the job that we do that you can't deny. Do you know, there's... Um, I have complicated feelings about this because I do. I'm like Bob. I think that everything that's human, you know, is interesting and and that I want to look at. And so I want to see a certain kind of realness, you know. On the other hand, I also know that, that what we do is not real. It's also a fantasy and that there are ways that we physically that you physically change things to, to tell a story, you know? So, so I think it's, I think it's silly to disregard the physical aspect of what we do, but you also can't get carried away with, you know, things looking, but also things looking artificial is not going to be, is, is, is not the right way to go either. So I think that for, for an actor, there are reasonable things to do, like be in shape just in terms of your stamina and stuff and your physical health, um, you know, look, you know, look good within reason. You know, I always tell young people too, like when you come out of school, look your age, act your age. People want to cast a 21 year old. They don't, they're not going to cast you as a 35 year old or, you know, or, or if you played all character parts in college, you're not going to play them, you know, as a young person, you're going to play your age. So be appropriate for the age that you are. When you just talked about Amber in Boogie Nights, I remember there was a quote, some of those elements, but in a very different way, uh, that you used to describe Amber, remind me a little bit of your character and what Maisie knew, mm-hmm. only as we talk about parenting. And you said, um, Susanna, yeah. that character, 
really shouldn't be someone who has a child or has a relationship because she's not willing to share herself with anything but her music. Correct. Right? And I think so much about how you have been really a role model for me because of your ability to negotiate and maybe part of it is because you moved around so much for a kid and really yeah. wanting to create stability for your own kids. Yeah. You raised them in New York City. Mm-hmm. You tried to work around their schedules rather right. than vice versa when you could. Yeah. Within yeah. reason. Yeah. Um, and it seems to me that you have been able to share yourself quite magnificently you. uh, with your real family and yeah. your work families. And I think that's really hard to do for any working parent. It's a challenge. You know, it sounds so silly to say, yes, the balance, blah, 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 blah. But it is, you know, you, I have work that I'm passionate about. I really, it it means a lot to me, um, but I'm very, very passionate about my family. And I've always wanted to have an intact family. And I wanted to make sure that my kids had a, had a sense of stability, you know? Um, So I think in a way, you know, for me to, my family happened later and my success happened later. It's not like this all happened. I worked steadily throughout my twenties, but it wasn't, I was a working actor. No one knew me, you know, I did, you know, a tell like the television off Broadway and stuff. So it wasn't like I had some big career right. and um, my film career happened in my early thirties at the time too, when I was also really craving a family, like right when I met Bart. So as you know, the interesting thing is my first Academy Award nomination happened right after I had a child. So so my focus was really on this baby. You know, I I had this baby and I finally had this family that I wanted, you know, this partner and this baby. And and um, and then suddenly this film career. So I was like, well, how do I navigate both of them? And you just I, I got very boundary oriented. And I realized, too, that because I was lucky enough to come into some success as I had a baby, there were things that people people in the film business can be will be very accommodating i can remember being on the set of psycho and my son was eight months old and i could go i had i was lucky enough to be able to afford a young woman to come with me to work she brought the baby we sat there i was nursing and they knocked on my trailer door and said we're ready for you and i tried to and my son was howling and wouldn't and i started to cry and i said to the really you know lovely ad i was like like he's crying i can't and he was like don't worry man we'll wait for you and i was like what and he gave me the time to like nurse my son calm him down you know go come to the set you know i was i was lucky in that i was in a in a in a world where people were accommodating me as a as a working mother so i kind of was able to put myself in situations like that learned how to like like when they're young they're very portable you know and because my husband's a writer and director he could come with me often too and then we you know there's a lot of traveling once they were in school it was a different deal and that was when i'm like well I have to work in New York City. If we travel, it has to be in the summertime when everybody can go. I was aided by the fact that New York City has this great tax credit. So lots of independent movies shoot here. As the kids got older, like on Hunger Games, it was in Atlanta and they boarded me in these little chunks. I would go down there for four days and then come home and then go back down there for two days and then come home. You know, it was like, so you find ways to, to accommodate your, your life and your family. Like we would say, like, how about this job in Australia? I'd be like, no, I still haven't been to Australia. <laughs> you know, you came up before the internet, before yeah. all the ways in which Twitter and Instagram help both define one's popularity. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an expectation uh, of your privacy to be no longer 
it used to be paparazzi. Now it's just right. people with their with phones, their phones, right? Like and, it's yeah. a whole other thing. How have you been able to protect them from that? Or how do you explain it to them? Or how do you handle it? You know, it's interesting. I remember when my son was really little and we were in a mall somewhere. Um, I was, do- I can't remember what job we were doing because we were in some other town and uh, he's like three and a half or something. And there was a magazine and my picture was on the front of it. And he said, look, mommy, Julianne Moore. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I said, yeah, you know, and I think for when, when they were little and I was starting and I, and I would say to him, they'd say you're on the cover of a magazine. And I'm like, I remember they said, somebody said like, you know, your mom is famous and that's why she's on the cover of a magazine. And I'd say to them, I'm on the cover of the magazine because of my work, not because I'm famous. When I'm on the cover, that means that I have a movie that's coming out and I'm doing promotion. And so they put me on that cover to sell tickets to that movie. So I wanted to make it very, very clear that that the picture had nothing to do with me. Picture had to do with my work, you know, so that we separated those things. And, you know, when they were little, there were fewer incidents. There there were, you know, fewer of those magazines and all that kind of stuff, the celebrity stuff. As I've gotten older, it's become a bigger deal. And I think it's not easy, you know. I mean, when my son was applying to colleges and stuff, he, he didn't want me to be like, around for some of the tours and everything because he didn't want people to know he didn't he wanted to do everything on his own he didn't want to have it it'd be colored by being the son of you know which which is understandable and and i was proud of him for that right and i think that you know i just try to keep a low profile in my kid's life just like as that i'm just a parent you know that 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 other stuff doesn't come into it you know I've, i've tried to make it as much a work thing as possible and it helps because our dad is also is filmmaker. So, you know, obviously it's sort of like a family business. And because we have been in New York City for such a long time and our relationships have been long, there are people who know them from growing up as as just they're from their schools and their friends and the neighborhood. They haven't had to kind of reintroduce themselves and had that thing happen to them. Even the restaurants we go to, we've been going to for years. So they, you know, it's a diff- it, there's a different sensibility. Yeah, me, yeah. Hope. So when you now choose movies that you do. I was thinking about Still Alice. You know, there used to be a lot of times when people have to make huge choices, they now call it Sophie's Choice Mm. because that film was so seminal. Mm -hmm. And obviously nothing we are making in terms of choice compares to Sophie's actual choice. Oh, God. Right? Like if you really think about it, it's become kind of a a watered down version of what Sophie's Choice was. But I've been thinking about how often as I get older and as my friends get older, we're forgetting things. And I was wondering when the phrase, I'm still Alice, uh-huh, will, uh-huh. will kind of permeate. But I just want to say that as yeah. someone who's had Alzheimer's in her family, oh, I'm sorry. Um, you know, there are certain things that would be, you know, when you talked about, I kind of chat with my friends on the set and then we go into the shot. Obviously, it's impossible to really be inside the head of someone who has Alzheimer's, right? Right. It would be impossible to really play an amputee without cutting your actual arm off. And and there's obviously movie magic. Yeah. Now that you've been doing this for so long, do you work differently now? Do you research differently? What's your process for working on a character? Well, first of all, I'm super, super lucky to get these opportunities. Very, very lucky. And um, the other thing that I've learned as an older actor... um, I said this to my husband the other day. I realized that when I was young, I would be like, I know all about this. I'm just going to do it like this. The older I get. <laughs> you suddenly were like, That's right. hey, I'm going to be on Hee Haw. I'm too. doing this. <laughs> so, so, um, but as I, as I've gotten older, I, I'm, I feel 
I'm always like, I don't know anything about this. How do I do this? I've, I, and I won't do anything until I've done, until I've really spoken to people and really examined stuff and really done a lot of research. Not research in that way, like I'm in the library, like, you know, um, but, but really talking to people and asking them about specific things. And I think in the cases of both Freeheld, where I was playing real, a real person, and still Alice, where I had lots of uh, real people to talk to, I asked very specific questions. And one of the things that I would say to people, you know, I think with, with, I had no experience, previous experience with Alzheimer's. I've been lucky enough to not have it in my family. So I've never known anyone. So I spoke to people and people were quite frank about their experiences and really, really generous in sharing them. And I would say like, can you tell me what it feels like? Can you tell me the first time you realized you didn't remember something or you noticed a symptom? And can you, you know, talk to family members and caregivers and doctors? And and the thing that I love most about acting now is when I ask people, I want to be as accurate as possible. Tell me the truth so that I can do it. And so you hear these remarkable things like playing a, you know, when I was playing Laurel Hester, I, you know, um, Stacy Andre, who's, who was her partner, was, you know, gave me pictures and stories and you know all of this stuff and I spoke to a um, a gay female cop who worked both in New Jersey and Staten Island about how she held her gun and what she wore and you know indications of sexuality you know I mean you just really sure. specific things so that it's all based on something real and in with still Alice too I was like I will not do something if I have not observed it so there were behaviors you know, because yes, you're right. Actors, I hate it when actors say, well, now I know what it's like to be blind because I've played a blind person. I'm like, no, you don't. Right. You don't know what it's like. You are going to, it's going to be an approximation of that. You're going to make an observation of it, but you're not going to know it yourself. So I would, so with the, with the Alzheimer's things, I was just like, let, I need to observe this, see the behavior so that I can communicate the behavior so I can become as precise as possible. So there is a, you know, facsimile of, of, of reality, but it's, but that's what, and that to me, that, that idea of behavioralism behind everything is the most interesting thing about acting. You know, what have you observed? What do you communicate? How do we show one another who we are? You know, that's the great thing about acting is that people come to the movies and they can see themselves, they see their own lives, they see their families, they see, they see humanity reflected in the same way that Bob Altman always did, you know? So where do you see your life reflected, you know, in the movies that way? It's exciting. How, um, is, how do you learn lines? Um, right. yeah, right. I have a little earpiece. That's right. I have someone reads them. Do you know them. Mr. Brando? Someone's over there reading them to me. Um, Two cards come in handy. Yes. I'm playing a mute next. I'm very excited. <laughs> um, man, lines, repetition, repetition, repetition. The times when I've had really a lot, you know, like a lot of language. I was doing Big Lebowski. I just had these long speeches. Yeah. And I was so scared. And so I would go on these long, these walks in LA and I would just say my lines to myself over and over again. I still do that. Sometimes now I will, now that we have these magical things called an iPhone. Sure. Um, with apps. With apps on them. Sometimes I'll record, if I have a speech, I'll record it and I will listen to it over and over Like learn again. it like a piece of music, like, yeah. the way we know lyrics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's really, it's really repetition. That's always the scariest thing, isn't it? No matter, no matter who, 
who you are, where you are in your life, you're always like, I'm going to forget my line, you know? And sometimes I see plays too, and I marvel, I think, like, how do they remember I know, this? you feel like, like you're, as if you're not an actress. Yes. Like, I feel like my mom, who's like, how did they learn all those <laughs> lines? Like, A lot of they didn't thump for it. They I, got through it. I'm like, I know, mom. I know, I, I don't actually know. used to laugh when you said that, but now I'm like, I don't, I don't know. know I know, I just saw Alice and Janney in Six Degree. I'm right, like, and you're like, how'd she's she like, do she's it? She's like, I, got, I don't know. I don't know. Don't talk to me. They might leave my head. Yes. Like we're all- and the minute I realize people will say, like, do you remember any lines? I'm like, oh, no. The minute I've stopped doing a play or stopped doing a movie or whatever, I'm like, it's gone. Can you remember auditioning? Oh, sure. And can you do you remember any particularly harrowing? Oh, my God. They were all so bad. But I do remember auditioning for a movie in the 80s when I was pretty young. You know, I was probably 27 and 26, something like that. And he was somewhere in there. Um, and uh, I really wanted this part. It was some adorable girl in an adorable movie. You know, I never got any movies in the 80s. I just didn't get them. And, and I was very nervous. And I would try to rehearse to myself what I was going to say as I came in to make a good impression and all that kind of stuff. And I was out in the waiting room and I went in and I looked at them and I smiled. I stuck out my hand and I said, how doing you? <laughs> And luckily, was it was like, a Danish picture. How doing? I wish, but I was like, I could never. I couldn't recover. I couldn't recover. I was like, that's it. I'm done. I'm not, and I just the whole thing was like it was over. It was over the minute I went in. I had no composure. It was over it was, when you said doing. I said, yeah, doing. How doing you? Um, I was like, forget it. Forget it. The first person to give me a job without auditioning was Bob Balaban. And I was, he was doing a TV show, an improvisational television show called Urban Anxiety. I think it was called that. And it was this big, huge cast of people. Oliver Platt was in it and Stanley Tucci. Um, and, um, oh my gosh. So anyway, so I can't remember. Where there was. And it was this huge cast. So um, I came in and I had my sides all in my hand, like, you know, my sweaty little hands, holding them really tightly. And, and Bob was like, okay. I'm going to show you, this is the writer's room. You know, such a lovely guy. And, oh, here we go. Here's our here's our set here and this set here. And we, we just walked around for like 35 minutes or something. And at the end he said, um, you think this is something you'd like to do? And I was like, oh, yeah, I'd like to do this. And he said, great. And I said, okay. And I left and I was just waiting for him to, <laughs> to read. And I, and I got outside and I called my agent and I said, I think I got the job. Unclear. <laughs> Unclear. Unclear. I said he never asked me to read. So I think I got and yeah. I had I, I he'd given me the job. I How mean, do you define success? And when did you feel successful? I think when you have my mother always said that Freud says a successful person or a happy to be happy, you need to have work and love. And that you don't feel happy or successful without both of them. I feel very, very fortunate. Well, I feel very fortunate that your work has continued to be so deep and magnificent. So I want to say thank you for that, too. Thanks. And thank you for coming in today. It's been this remarkable. Awesome. Clouds can make the wind blow. Bugs can make the grass grow. So there you go. These are little known facts that you You know. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com.
I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says Contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast. And on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by Pro Media. Located in Times Square, Pro Media offers both production and post production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. Pro Media Sound Vision. Find out more at promedia.nyc. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save money.